All right. We are in uh, the Davidic Covenant, Part 2. Last week, we talked about the promises that God made to King David in 2 Samuel 7 when he presented what we call the Davidic Covenant. This morning, our focus is going to be on how every one of those marvelous promises that God made to David is fulfilled perfectly in Christ. We'll look at each of the original promises, but we're going to group them a, a little differently than they were originally presented in 2 Samuel 7, and hopefully you'll see the reasons for those groupings as we proceed. Uh, this is kind of the where we're going slide. I'm not going to go into it in detail, but I want you to see at a glance we're going to deal with each of the promises, and then we're going to look at how those promises are fulfilled in Jesus Christ. First, God promised to David a name and a seed. We saw last week that God promised to make David's name great. And he indeed prospered David as king over his people Israel. David's name became famous among all the nations of the earth in his day. And after his death, David is remembered in Scripture as the man after God's own heart. In fact, as you trace through the, the narrative regarding all the kings that came after David, he becomes the standard when it comes to a heart after God uh, by which all the other kings are measured. But David's greatest claim to fame by far would come through his descendant, his greatest descendant, the preeminent seed of David, who would be the king of kings. In Matthew chapter 1, Matthew begins his gospel with the genealogy that goes from Jesus, from Abraham to Jesus. And there are some very interesting things in this genealogy. It stands out in comparison with other biblical genealogies in a few ways. First, it is introduced by going backward. Starts with Jesus, goes backward to David, and then from David to Abraham, and it skips a bunch of generations in those two leaps. Then it begins from Abraham and goes forward, generation by generation, until it reaches Jesus Christ. Another rather surprising thing about this genealogy is that the name mentioned most often in it isn't Jesus even though it's his genealogy. The name mentioned most is David. The name David occurs five times. The name Jesus occurs twice. And the title, Christ, which means Messiah, is mentioned one more time than the name of Jesus. As we discussed previously in this series, the word Christ is not Jesus' last name. It means Messiah, the anointed one, of God. And every time it shows up in the New Testament, except for two times that speak of false Christs, it's pointing us to the fact that Jesus is the promised Messiah, the one of whom all the Old Testament prophets spoke, the one who would fulfill all that God promised to Abraham and all that God promised to David. Now, this is all very intentional on Matthew's part in the way he presents this. Because this David connection is fundamental to what Matthew is telling us about Jesus. Matthew's gospel is often called 
the gospel of the kingdom. And from the very first words of his gospel, Matthew is very carefully pointing us to the fact that Jesus is the promised son of David. The preeminent seed who perfectly fulfills all of the covenant promises in all respects. In a similar way, Paul begins his epistle to the Romans by pointing out this David connection. He says, Paul, a bondservant of Christ Jesus. Notice the first thing that he says about Jesus is the name, is the title, Christ. Called as an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures. He's saying this is the one that the prophets talked about. Concerning his son, who was born of a descendant of David according to the flesh, who was declared the Son of God with power by the resurrection from the dead, according to the Spirit of holiness, Jesus Christ our Lord. Paul calls him Christ Jesus, and then at the end he calls him Jesus Christ our Lord. The messianic title, Christ, is prominent here. And Paul says he's the one promised beforehand by the prophets. He says this Jesus, the Christ, is a descendant of David according to the flesh. Now we'll come back to what this passage says about Jesus as the Son of God a little bit later, but for now I just want you to see what it says about Jesus as the Son of David. One thing I earnestly hope to accomplish today is that at least some of you will never think about the connection between David and Jesus in the same way as you did before. That you'll see that this connection pervades all of Scripture. We can't possibly look at all of the passages that touch on this connection between David and Christ because there are hundreds of them. But I want to give you one prominent example at at the start, and that's Micah's prophecy regarding the city from which Messiah would come, the city of his birth, which is the city of David. We're going to see what Micah says about it, and then we're going to see how Micah's very important prophecy uh, is seen as identifying Jesus as Messiah when it comes to the New Testament and what was going on at the time that Christ came. In Micah chapter 5, verses 1 through 5, he starts by saying, Muster yourselves in troops, daughter of troops. They have led siege against us. He's speaking of the, the uh, coming siege against Judah and Jerusalem. He says, With the rod they will smite the judge of Israel on the cheek. But as for you, Bethlehem, Ephratah, too little to be among the clans of Judah. From you one will go forth for me to be ruler in Israel. His goings forth are from long ago, from the days of eternity. Not something you'd say about a typical king. And then it says, therefore, he will give them up until the time when she who is in labor has born a child. Then the remainder of his brethren will return to the sons of Israel. He will arise and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord in the majesty of the name of Yahweh his God. And they will remain because at that time he will be great to the ends of the earth and this one will be our peace. So Micah says many things here that we're not going to go into in detail about this coming ruler. But he, he says first, he says that this one will come from Bethlehem, Ephrathah, a city in Judea. In Luke chapter 2, Caesar Augustus, the emperor of Rome, decreed that a census be taken of the entire inhabited earth. And 
everyone had to go back to the the city that their tribe or clan originated from in order to register for this census. So Joseph, who was a Judean, uh, a uh, descendant of David, went to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem. And he registered. And, of course, he had with him Mary, who was pregnant. And while he was there in Bethlehem, Mary gave birth to Jesus. The very next thing that's said in Luke chapter 2 is that an angel of the Lord appeared to a group of shepherds in the fields who were keeping watch over their flocks by night. And an angel of the Lord suddenly stood before them. The glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terribly frightened. And the angel said to them, Do not be afraid, for behold, I bring you good news of a great joy which shall be for all the people. For today in the city of David there has been born for you a Savior who is Christ the Lord. Even before Jesus came, it's clear that many Jews understood that the Christ, the King of all the earth who would come from the seed of David, must come from Bethlehem, the city of David, according to Micah's prophecy. In Matthew chapter 2, verses 1 through 6, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem, in the days of Herod, Magi came and they asked, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? You know the story, they had followed the star from the east. And when Herod heard that these guys were looking for the for the king of the Jews, he got a little upset. And he gathered together all the chief priests and scribes, the Jewish leaders, and he began to inquire of them where this Christ was to be born. And the Jewish leaders told Herod that Micah had the answer, that Messiah would be born in Bethlehem of Judea. Uh, of Judah. In John chapter 7, multitudes of Jews were gathered in Jerusalem for the Feast of Booths. And after hearing Jesus' teaching, they began arguing among themselves about who this guy was. And some of them said, this is the prophet. And they were speaking of the prophet that would come after Moses in the pattern of Moses. Others were saying, this is the Christ. And others, still others were saying, not knowing where he came from, surely Christ is not going to come from Galilee, is he? Has not the scripture said that the Christ comes from the offspring of David and from Bethlehem, the village where David was? Even those who didn't believe that Jesus was the Christ, the promised Messiah, believed that the Christ would come as the seed of David and that he would come from the city of David. And the references to Jesus' birth in Bethlehem, the city of David, constitute just one of many ways that the Scriptures forge this powerful connection between David and Jesus. It's amazing to me to see how many times and in how many ways this connection shows up throughout Scripture, both Testaments. You might find it interesting that out of the group consisting of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Moses, and David, the name that is most mentioned in the Bible is David. In fact, there are nearly 300 more references to David than there are to Moses, who comes in second. 
Why is this connection between Jesus and David such a big deal? Well, it's because David is the shadow of which Jesus is the substance. The declaration that Jesus is the preeminent son of David is so foundational to God's plan of redemption that the connection between these two cannot be overstated. As we move on through this study, we'll see that connection come up at every single point. God promised a seed and a name. He also promised to David sonship and correction. The Old Testament makes it clear that the one who would come as the seed of David would also be the son of God. In 2 Samuel 7, uh, we first see in the giving of the Davidic covenant that God says about the, the seed of David, I will be a father to him and he will be a son to me. And then he talks about correction. When he commits iniquity, I'll correct him with the rod of men and the strokes of the sons of men. Now let's talk for a minute about God's, about the idea of God's correction, the Davidic kings, before we talk further about sonship. In God's dealings with Solomon, the son of David, and with the kings who succeeded Solomon on David's throne, the father-son relationship manifested itself largely in God's work to correct the sins of the kings when they got out of line. And ultimately, it manifested itself in the exiles, which resulted in the absence of any earthly king on the throne of David for a very long time. God chastises those whom he calls son. But how does this promise of correction apply to the preeminent seat of, of David, Messiah? Messiah was indeed chastised by God the Father with the rod of men and the strokes of the sons of men, right? Much more literally than was the case with many of the kings that came before him. But there's one infinite distinction between this ultimate king and all who had come before him in the line of David. Because this king was not punished for his own sins. He was punished for the sins of his subjects, of his people. Isaiah 53, verses 4 through 6 says of Messiah, Surely our griefs he himself bore, and our sorrows he carried. But we ourselves considered him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. But he was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening, the punishment for our peace fell upon him, and by his scourging we are healed. All of us, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way, but the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall upon him. One of the greatest passages on substitutionary atonement in the whole Bible, written 700 years before Christ came. Now, what kind of king would come and take upon himself the punishment that was due to his people, to his subjects, because of their disloyalty to him, because of their violation of his character. Only one king, the true sinless Son of God. Jesus' relationship of sonship with the Father is described in terms that far transcend anything that's said of any other person in Scripture. 
The Jews always referred to, to God as our Father. Jesus referred to him as my Father. And there are many other ways in which that the uniqueness of that relationship plays out in Scripture. Throughout the many Old Testament prophecies, the unique sonship of the promised seed of David is sharply in focus. In Isaiah 9, the, one of the passages that Paul read this morning, you're very familiar with it, it's in Handel's Messiah. <laughs> we find that this promised one who would rule forever and ever on the throne of David would come as a child and as a son. A child will be born to us, a son will be given to us. And the government will rest on his shoulders, and then the things that are said about this son, this king, are astounding. His name will be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Father of Eternity, Prince of Peace. There will be no end to the increase of his government or of peace on the throne of David and over his kingdom. To establish it and to uphold it with justice and righteousness from then on and forevermore. The zeal of Yahweh of hosts will accomplish this. We're going to come back to that verse, that passage several times. Psalm chapter 2 asserts the sonship of Messiah very forcefully. <laughs> My brother Salvador Zarita reminded me that in Peter's second, in Peter's sermon in Acts chapter 4 verses 25 to 26, Peter says explicitly that this psalm came from the mouth of King David. Psalm 2 is a marvelous and fearsome prophecy about the coming of the one God calls his anointed. And the word that's used is the Hebrew word Mashiach, Messiah, which means anointed. This psalm says that the kings of the earth will rise up to oppose God's Messiah, who sits, uh, and, and then God, I love this, God who sits in heaven will laugh at them. You want to make God laugh? Take a stand against Jesus Christ. Then in verses 6 and 7, we find words associated with the coronation or crowning of the king of kings. God says he installs his king on his holy mountain, Mount Zion, and then he declares his king to be his son. Even the statement, today I have begotten thee, is a formal declaration of sonship and heirship, not of birth. God is announcing that the day is coming when the earth will realize the absolute dominion of his unique son. Verses 8 and 9, God tells us that this son, or God tells his son, that he will give to him the nations and the ends of the earth as his inheritance. Then God warns the kings of the earth, commanding them in verse 12 to do homage to the son to submit themselves to the king who is the very son of God so that they will not incur his fierce wrath and perish in the way. (laughs) And these are the kings who have come up against him. Finally, David says of this coming king, how blessed are all who take refuge in him. It's the fear that attracts. The promised Messiah, the King of Kings, is the one and only Son of God. In Matthew 16, Jesus asked the disciples the most important question any of us will ever be asked. Who do you say that I am? Again, we see a response that points to Jesus as Son of David and Son of God 
In verse 16, Peter said, Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. Peter was affirming that Jesus was Christ, Messiah, the promised seed of David, and in the same breath, he affirmed that Jesus is the Son of the living God. In Romans 1, passage we just looked at a little while ago, Paul Paul's introduction is all about Jesus the Christ, the promised son of David. And in the same sentence in which Paul says that Jesus was born of a descendant of David, he says Jesus was declared to be the son of God with power by the resurrection from the dead. The son of David is the son of God. Perfect man and perfect God. Another major promise of the Davidic covenant is the promise of a place of rest from enemies. Jesus Christ is our rest and our peace. There are many passages in the Old Testament, especially throughout the prophets, in which God restates the promise that he's going to provide for Israel a place of permanent rest where they will no longer be be disturbed by enemies. Some of the passages that we've already seen speak of this. Isaiah chapter 9, verses 6 and 7, where it says, A child will be born to us, a son will be given to us. One of the names that's given to that son is Prince of Peace. And and God declares through the prophet, There will be no end to the increase of his government or of peace on the throne of David and over his kingdom. Micah chapter 5, which we've also seen, the prophecy that speaks of Jesus coming from Bethlehem. At the end of that, it says, this one will be our peace, in verse 5. Jeremiah 23. And again in chapter 33, both were read this morning, God declares that the righteous branch of David and Judah will bring about security and safety for Judah and Israel, for the two divisions of tribes. It says, in his days Judah will be saved. In the days of the righteous branch, Judah will be saved and all Israel will dwell securely. Chapter 33 puts it this way. In those days Judah will be saved and Jerusalem will dwell in safety. The rest, the peace that this king will bring to God's people will not merely be an end to conflict with enemies, with earthly enemies. Revelation chapter 21 and 22 speak of the end of the ages. The time after Jesus has judged all sin and God has ushered in the new heavens and the new earth. And these final chapters of God's word speak of a place in which there will be no more tears, no more death, no more mourning or crying or pain. And the one who will be king in this place is Jesus Christ. The one who in Revelation 22, 13, and 16 is called the Alpha and the Omega. The beginning and the end. Jesus will perfectly fulfill God's promise to David to provide a place of perfect and permanent rest and peace to the redeemed of God. 
Yet another promise, and this is three promises in one. God promised to David that he would provide for him a house, a kingdom, and a throne. And all of this is fulfilled in Jesus Christ, the King of Kings. Now there are again many prophecies about Messiah that approach God's promise of a coming perfect king from various different angles. And I want to touch on just a few of those angles, and this won't be comprehensive. (laughs) First, God declares that the seed of David will be a just and righteous king. In fact, the just and righteous king. Now, the world has never known a ruler who uh, who has truly governed anyone with perfect justice and righteousness. Because all all of the rulers on this earth are merely sinners like you and me. But the king whom God promised to raise up as the preeminent seat of David will truly rule in perfect righteousness and justice. He will perfectly represent the Father, manifesting his holy, just, and righteous character without exception. We'll look again at three passages we just saw that drive home this promise. Isaiah 9, 6 and 7. This child who will be born, the one on whose shoulders the government of the entire earth will rest, will establish, it says, on the throne, he will come on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and righteousness from then on and forevermore. Jeremiah 23, again, Behold, days are coming, declares Yahweh, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch. And he will reign as king and act wisely and do justice and righteousness in the land. (laughs) And at the end of this, it says, the name by which this one will be called, Yahweh, our righteousness. This king will not merely be righteous. He will be our righteousness. That's a powerful idea. Jeremiah 33, verses 14 to 16 Another behold days are coming passage. God's saying, pay attention. (laughs) When I will fulfill the good word I have spoken concerning the house of Israel and the house of David. In those days, at that time, I will cause a righteous branch of David to spring forth. He shall execute justice and righteousness on the earth. And then at the end again, this time, instead of saying that his name will be Yahweh or righteousness, he says the name of Judah will be Yahweh, our righteousness. The people of God will receive the same name as the name of their king. Yahweh, our righteousness. God made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf that we might become the righteousness of God in him. In Revelation 22, it says that all of the bondservants of the Lamb of God will have the name of Yahweh on their foreheads. He's a just and righteous king. He is the everlasting king. Second Samuel 7, when God is, was speaking to David through the prophet Nathan and giving him the stipulations, the, the promises of this great covenant, He said, I'll raise up a seed for you and I will establish the throne of his kingdom 
forever. Then in verse 16, he says, Your house and your kingdom shall endure before me forever. Your throne shall be established forever. Three times forever. Isaiah 9, 6, and 7. There will be no end to the increase of his government or of peace on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it with justice and righteousness from then on and forevermore. Can it get any clearer? Ezekiel 37 is an amazing passage. And hang on. In this pa- in that chapter, and I recommend you read this chapter when you have time. God says he will breathe life back into the dead bones of Israel. And then he'll regather Israel and Judah back into the land that he promised. He says you'll, he'll reunite them into one kingdom and they will have one king. And then he says in verse 24, my servant David will be king over them. Now this is about half a millennium after David died. My servant David will be king over them and they will have one shepherd. And then he says a little later, my, David, my servant, will be their prince. How long? Forever. And I will place them and multiply them and set my sanctuary in their midst forever. Now this is an amazingly loaded passage that we'll look at in more detail when we get to the new covenant. But you get the idea, right? God declares over and over that the kingdom and reign of his Messiah will have no end. He's the just and righteous king. He's the everlasting king. And he is the priest king. One of the many unique things that the scriptures say about the promised king in the line of David is that he will be both priest and king. Now this was unheard of in the history of Israel. The priests came from the line of Levi, and God never called a king over his people from the priestly line. Indeed, the king was to be accountable to the priests, according to Deuteronomy 17. In the prophecies of Zechariah, there are some amazing things that are said regarding a particular priest named Joshua, the son of Jehozadak. Joshua was high priest at the time of Zerubbabel, love that name, <laughs> in the days when Cyrus, king of Persia, led the Jews to return, allowed the Jews to return to Jerusalem after 70 years of captivity, and he allowed them to rebuild the temple and the city walls of Jerusalem. Now the Hebrew name Joshua is the same name that's translated Yeshua, Jeshua in other passages. And that name means Yahweh is our salvation. It's the same Hebrew name from which the name Jesus comes. Now look at what's said about this man, Joshua, the high priest. (laughs) Now listen, Joshua, the high priest, you and your friends who are sitting in front of you, indeed they are men who are a symbol. They are men who are a symbol. For behold, I, God, am going to bring in my servant, the branch. For behold, the stone that I have set before Joshua, on one stone are seven eyes. Behold, I will engrave an inscription on it, declares Yahweh of hosts, and I will remove the iniquity of that land in one day. In that day, declares Yahweh of hosts, 
Every one of you will invite his neighbor to sit under his vine and under his fig tree. The first thing to notice about this man, Joshua, that God declares, is that God declares him to be a symbol, a pointer to something greater. And in fact, as the rest of this unfolds, he's pointing to something future at the time that this was written. God starts to explain this symbolism then, saying, I am going to bring in my servant, the branch. In Jeremiah 23 and 33, God referred to Messiah as the righteous branch of David and Judah. Associated with the raising up of this one called the branch is God's accomplishment of the removal of the iniquity of the land in a single day. And then God speaks of an abundance of provision in the form of every man possessing his own vine and his own fig tree. And we saw last week that the the theme or image of abundant provision is very strongly associated with the prophecies of Messiah and of Messiah's kingdom. Now look at how God expands on this foreshadowing through the man Joshua in Zechariah chapter 6, verses 11 through 13. God says, Take silver and gold and make an ornate crown and set it on the head of Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest. Then say to him, Thus says Yahweh of hosts, Behold, a man whose name is Branch, the same name, for he will branch out from where he is and he will build the temple of Yahweh. Yes, it is he who will build the temple of Yahweh and he who will bear the honor and sit on his throne. He will be a priest on his throne. And the council of peace will be between the two offices, the office of priest and the office of king. This is an amazing prophecy. (laughs) Joshua, the high priest whom God says will act as a symbol of something to come, is made to wear a crown. And God declares this to be a foreshadowing of the future coming of the one he calls the branch. And we've got plenty of context for the fact that that's Messiah. And he says this one will rebuild the temple. And we'll focus on the promise of the house of God, the rebuilding of the temple a bit later. But God declares here that this one will be a priest on his throne and the council of peace will be between the two offices. He'll be priest and king with no conflict between those two roles. Through Zechariah, God speaks of the same king referred to in Jeremiah 23 and 33. And he says he will be priest and king. He'll be the just and righteous king. He'll be the everlasting king. He will be the priest king and he will be the shepherd king. In 1 Samuel 17, as the young David was about to go up against the giant Goliath, King Saul told David it would be impossible for a youth such as him to defeat a mighty and huge warrior like Goliath. He couldn't even fit into Saul's armor. It just kind of fell off of him because he was such a kid. But in verses 34 to 36, David replied to Saul. And if you think you know what courage is, look at this. David said to Saul, your servant used to tend his father's sheep. 
When a lion or a bear came and took a lamb from the flock, I went out and I attacked him. And I rescued it from his mouth. And when he rose up against me, I seized him by the beard and I struck him and killed him. Your servant has killed both the lion and the bear. And this uncircumcised Philistine will be like one of them since he has taunted the armies of the living God. You ever heard a teenager talk like that? When David was finally acknowledged as king over all the tribes of Israel after running from Saul for most of his young life, the people of Israel assembled at the city of Hebron to honor him as king. All the tribes of Israel came to David at Hebron and they said, Behold, we are your bone and your flesh. Previously Saul was king over us. You were the one who led us in and out. And Yahweh said to you, You will shepherd my people Israel and you will be ruler over Israel. And then they anointed David as king. God called this man David to rule over his people, not as a tyrant, but as an under-shepherd of the one whom David in Psalm 23 called his shepherd. And in all of this, David foreshadows Messiah, the perfect shepherd king. Ezekiel chapter 37 Verses 24 and 25. My servant David will be king over the, the reunited, regathered house of Israel and house of Judah. And they will have one shepherd. And they will walk in my ordinances and keep my statutes and observe them. By the way, that's the new covenant that we'll talk about next time. And David, my servant, will be their prince forever. Micah chapter 5, verses 1 through 5 again. From you one will go forth from you, Bethlehem, one will go forth for me to be ruler in Israel. And it says, he will arise and shepherd his flock in the strength of Yahweh in the majesty of the name of Yahweh as God. John chapter 10. Jesus says, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me. Even as the Father knows me and I know the Father and I lay down my life for the sheep. My sheep hear my voice and I know them. And they follow me and I give them eternal life and they shall never perish and no one shall snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. You remember David's statement about how he'd grab a lion by the beard and slay it to protect his sheep? Well, the fierce protection that David said he had for his sheep foreshadows the fierce protection that the all-powerful, preeminent son of David, the shepherd king, has for us as his sheep. He gives life to us and he will not allow anyone or anything to snatch us out of his hand. That's called eternal security. The last promise that God made to David is that his seed would create a house for God's name. We saw last week at the beginning of 2 Samuel 7 that before you get to the covenant promises, you have David getting all excited about building a house for God. But God told David he would not be the one to build that house, but that 
the seed who would come after him would build it. And I believe there is a very deliberate uh, sort of ambiguity in that statement in Second Samuel 7 on the part of God. There's a double meaning. In the near term, that descendant was Solomon. Solomon built an ornate and majestic temple in Jerusalem as the place in which the glory of God would dwell in the midst of his people. But Solomon's temple was not the true or final fulfillment of this covenant promise. As we saw last time, Solomon declared himself in 1 Kings 8 that neither heaven nor the highest heavens can contain God. The God who created the universe cannot be made to live in a house made with human hands. Solomon fully recognized that the majestic temple he had just constructed for God was only a symbol, an earthly picture of a true dwelling, the dwelling of God. But there would come a descendant in the line of David who would build the true house for God. And the temple to be built by the true seed of David would be manifested in two ways. God with us and God in us. From the very beginning of God's instruction regarding the tabernacle and later the temple, the point of both was that God would dwell in the midst of his people and would provide for his people a way of access to draw near to his presence and to meet with him. But the tabernacle and the temple on this earth were merely pictures, again, of the true dwelling of God. Zechariah 6, that we looked at a moment ago. The one called the branch, the priest king, is the one who will build the temple of Yahweh. Second, twice in this passage, again in verse 13, yes, it is he who will build the temple of Yahweh. This, this one who will also reign on the throne. Ezekiel 37, verses 24 to 28. My servant David will be king over the regathered kingdom. They will have one shepherd. And then in verse 26, I will place Israel and multiply them and will set my sanctuary in their midst forever. My dwelling place also will be with them. And I will be their God and they will be my people. And the nations will know that I am Yahweh who sanctifies Israel when my sanctuary is in their midst forever. The last temple that was built for God was destroyed in 70 A.D. And it's still a ruins. Revelation chapter 21, verses 3 and 5. I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is among men, and He shall dwell among them, and they shall be His people, and God Himself shall be among them. And He who sits on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. And He said, Right, for these words are faithful and true. Later in the same chapter, and this is the last two chapters of Scripture, Revelation 21, 10 and 11, and 22 through 23, I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there is no longer any sea. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven 
from God, adorned or made ready as a bride adorned for her husband. And he carried me away in the spirit to a great and high mountain and showed me the holy city Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God, having the glory of God. And I saw no temple in it, for the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb are its temple. The city has no need of the sun or of the moon to shine upon it, for the glory of God has illumined it, and its lamp is the Lamb. Patrick opened our worship with that this morning. Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God, doesn't merely build the temple of God. He is the temple of God. The tabernacle was an earthly picture of the way of access to God. Jesus is the way of access to God. And in Jesus Christ, we are not only granted access to draw near to God, God comes to indwell us. 1 Corinthians 6, 18 through 20. Great passage about what to do with, when faced with the temptation of immorality. Flee it. Flee immorality. Every other sin that a man commits is outside the body, but the immoral man sins against his own body. Do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit whom you have from God and that you are not your own. You have been bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God in your body. Not only are you individually a bearer of the presence of God, but the body of Christ corporately is the dwelling place of God. Ephesians chapter 2. So then you, Gentile believers, are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and are of God's household. Having been built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom, in him, the whole building being fitted together is growing into a holy temple in the Lord, in whom you also are being built together into a dwelling of God in the Spirit. Jesus Christ is the promised seed of David who builds all the saints together into the true temple, the dwelling place of God. The one whose name is Emmanuel, God with us, is the one who makes God to dwell in us. When all is said and done, the only temple we will have need of will be God himself. Because of Jesus Christ, our access to him will be perfect. In closing, I want to talk for just a minute about the fact that God did it all. God made amazing promises to David that impact all of mankind, but that most profoundly impact us who are the redeemed of God through faith in Jesus Christ. And it is God in Christ alone who fulfills every promise to a perfect and infinite degree in keeping with his perfect and infinite character. When we looked at God's covenant promises to David in 2 Samuel 7, we saw that nine times God says, I will. And he did. Isaiah 9. A child will be born to us. A son will be given to us. <laughs> All these amazing things he says about the coming Messiah. And at the end of it he says, The zeal of Yahweh of hosts will accomplish this.
Jeremiah 23. I, God, will raise up for David a righteous branch. Jeremiah 33. I will fulfill the good word which I have spoken. I will cause a righteous branch of David to spring forth. And I will be the righteousness of my people. Beloved, if God doesn't do it, it doesn't get done. If you come away with nothing else from this series than that, please walk away with that. When God makes covenants with men, He is the one who makes the covenant promises happen. And His promises never fail. I know there have been some who have... uh, who've been a little starved through this process for application. I'll ask you to bear with me because when we get to the end of the series, we're going to go back and we're going to talk about symbol and substance and we're going to talk a good bit about application. Right now, what I'm hoping that you're getting is uh, a few things. First, that all of Scripture speaks with one voice. Second, that all of Scripture speaks of Jesus Christ. Third, that God does it all. And fourth, our God is a covenant-keeping God who never disappoints. If you have those four truths in your, in your mind after this series, I think you're going to find a lot of application for yourself. <laughs> but we will talk more about it. Loving Father, I thank you for this body, these dear brothers and sisters. I thank you that, that we, can, we can mull over these amazing, wonderful things from your word and we can encourage one another with them. I thank you for the great conversations you've given me with members of this body as, as I've worked through this, this study. Father, burn these things into us, sear them upon our hearts so that we may know more fully the one whom we, whom we serve. The one who is the perfect son of David and the perfect son of God. Our master, our king, our sacrifice, our priest, our savior, Jesus Christ. It's in his name we pray. Amen.